The first thing that we see here is that the death of Jesus came about according to the plan of God. So the first thing we're going to notice is how Jesus' death was at least partially the result of the plan of God. And really, we'd say fully, like this was the plan of God. It came about in God's plan that Jesus would be put to death. This is not immediately clear from verse 1. You know, verse 1 is really just about the events that are going on, the public events that are going on while Jesus is in Jerusalem. But when we consider what those public events are, like when we think about what the Jewish people are actually celebrating during this time where Jesus' death is being plotted, it's then that we see the hand of God in the timing of how these things are playing out. The Jewish people are getting ready to celebrate the Passover, we read. Uh, The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. That's verse 1. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasts for a week, and it begins right after the day of Passover. Okay, That's, That's how it operates. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, immediately following. Week long festival. So these two observances, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, they go together. Now, what are the Jewish people commemorating in these celebrations? Well, they're remembering and celebrating their nation's exodus from Egypt about 1,500 years prior. They're remembering and celebrating that time when God um, saw their slavery, saw their physical bondage, saw their suffering, and brought them out under the leadership of Moses, brought them out, made them a nation, gave them a new good land. The Exodus, right? The Passover itself was a a memorial meal that recalled the very night that they made their Exodus from Egypt. The Passover meal recalls the circumstances of that night. God judged Egypt by putting to death the firstborn in each home, right? There was judgment that night. Egypt was judged. The firstborn in each Egyptian home died, but God showed mercy to Israel. Mercy was also present on that night. There was mercy and deliverance that night because God passed over the homes of the children of Israel when they applied the blood of the Passover lamb to their door frame, then the destroying angel passed over that home and did not destroy the firstborn in that home. Do you see how there's both judgment and mercy present on that Passover night, on the night of that exodus? There's judgment on some, and there's mercy for others. And so what we have to understand is that the same two elements, judgment and mercy are present in the death of Jesus on the cross. We have to understand that his death is a second exodus. Now, it's not an exodus from physical bondage to physical slavery. The second and greater exodus is an exodus from spiritual bondage to a spiritual slavery under sin. In this exodus also, we see judgment and mercy at the cross. Only this time, it's God's own son who experiences the judgment. In the first exodus, the judgment fell on the Egyptians, and their firstborn died. 
In the second Exodus, God himself bears the judgment in his son. So that those who believe in him may go free. That's the mercy and deliverance component. So we see how all of these things are coming together at Passover time. There's going to be a new Passover lamb. Jesus himself sacrificed and his blood will mark out those to whom God will show mercy. God is completely in control of this second exodus. Like, you know from reading the gospel accounts, people tried to kill Jesus multiple times. And multiple times, he would say, my time has not yet come. He would pass on through their midst until this particular time that God had ordained when Jesus would bear divine judgment at this Passover time. Now, if you need additional confirmation that Jesus' death is a result of the plan of God, if you want something explicit that says Jesus' death was part of the plan of God, just flip to Acts 2. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, says exactly this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter locates the death of Jesus within the plan of God. Now that might unsettle you. It may not sit quite right with you to say that God could plan for his son to die. What kind of God would do that? What kind of father would plan that for his son? And plan that he would die in this particularly horrible way. What does that say about God? And what I would tell you is that this is where our theology really helps us. This is where it's really helpful for us to remember that when we say God, we mean God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three persons, equal in glory and wisdom and power, equal in every respect, all equally God. Each person having a part in the redemption of mankind that they undertook willingly, even joyfully, according to Hebrews 12. That means that the Bible does not present us with Jesus, the Son of God, as a victim of his Father. It's just the opposite. The Bible presents us with Jesus, the Son of God, who is fully God not subordinate to his father, but willingly undertaking his mission of redeeming mankind through his incarnation and sacrifice. I hope that helps you. We're not looking at a a victim son of a powerful father here when we look at God. We're looking at Jesus Christ equal to the father in every respect and willingly taking on his mission to die. Not a victim, but a victor. a victor over sin and death. So we see Jesus' death is presented as the plan of God. It's all in the timing of God. This is the plan of God that this would happen. Now, that's not the only way that it's presented. It's just the first way that it's presented. 
When we get down to verse 3, we see that the death of Jesus also came about by the initiative of Satan. Right, look, look back at the text and see that it says, verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas. Judas called Iscariot, who was a member of the Twelve. <clears throat> and it's this initiative of Satan, Satan takes the initiative here that really kicks off the chain of events that will lead to the cross. Satan entered into Judas. That raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? What exactly does that mean? We just finished saying that Jesus was not a victim here in this story, but is Judas somehow a victim? I mean, Satan entered into him. Who can resist that? We don't view Jesus as a victim, but should we view, uh, we, we don't view Jesus as a victim, but should we view Judas as a victim? Another question that we might ask is whether this entering in by Satan was permanent or temporary. I mean, you know the story probably. Judas later feels remorse, and he goes and tries to give the money back. He even, according to Matthew 27, he even says, I have sinned. That doesn't sound like the words of someone who still has Satan inside of them to just admit, I have sinned. Was Satan still in him at, at that point? It seems rather unlikely. So in one, in one sense, there seems to be a lot of mystery here when we read Satan entered into Judas. Lots of things that we just don't know. Lots of things that we might not understand. But what I would also like you to recognize and for us to recognize together that in another sense, there's really no mystery here at all. There's a sense in which everything that we're seeing happen here is a very familiar dynamic to all of us something that we all experience regularly. Let me, let me just ask this really simple question. What did Judas want at this point? At this point in the narrative, what did, what did he want? It's commonly held that Judas was experiencing some extreme disappointment related to the fact that Jesus' kingdom was not going to come right away. It's likely that his expectations and his hopes were tied in with national Israel, with what pretty much everybody wanted, which is for Jesus to come and liberate them from the Romans, socially and politically, just have them be gone and establish a kingdom for Israel. That's very natural, isn't it? We can understand that. Give us a a glorious, physical, tangible kingdom now. And that's what we want now. We want that victory now. And why does Jesus keep on talking about the kingdom coming later? And why does he keep talking about dying? That doesn't add up at all. Judas is starting to realize that this glorious kingdom they're all hoping to see is not coming now. And that was massively disappointing, probably even impossible for him to believe that it could somehow come after Jesus died. And he's been talking about his death again and again 
to his disciples as they have journeyed together. And Judas wanted the here and now reward. We can say also with some conviction that he uh, wanted money also. Money is a, a right now, tangible reward, usable right now. We see in this passage that he received money for betraying Jesus. Um, If we went over to John 12, we could read there that it turns out Judas had control of the bank account. He was their their, uh, finance guy. He was their banker. He he had the money bag. And in John's gospel, he tells us that Judas used to help himself to what was in the money bag. John calls him a thief. So what did he do? He traded Jesus for a right now reward. That's what he wanted. Not some future promise reward coming someday. He wanted something now. So he went out and got it at the expense of Jesus. Now, let me ask you, are you familiar with that dynamic? See, this is where it's not mysterious at all. Are you familiar with that dynamic? Trading Jesus away in the moment for what you want. Even after all that time with him, even after all the investment that Jesus has made in you, even after you've been part of the inner circle, a disciple, all that time, think about all that training that you've had, all those classes, all those sermons, how Jesus has called you and brought you in and he's invested in you and he's given to you and he's prayed for you and he's been present with you. Even after all those things, just trading him away in a moment to get what you want. Just counting that relationship with Jesus as a nothing to get some kind of immediate reward. See, in another sense, there's no mystery here at all. We just see a human being a human. You see a frail disciple being a frail disciple. Now, as dark and hopeless as all this seems, I think there's actually some really practical help here for you and for me, okay? If we want to follow Jesus closely... If that really is where our heart is, if we love him and want to follow him closely but feel very vulnerable to the temptation of the here and now fulfillment of our wants, okay? If you can identify with that, just wanting the here and now fulfillment of your wants, if we use the the scarier word or the biblical word, we would say the here and now fulfillment of our lusts. If you feel that strength while trying to follow Jesus, here are three points to consider, okay? Two of them are things to realize. One of them is a thing to do. All based on what we find here in this interplay between Satan and Judas, okay? So if you can't identify with the pull of your lust, don't listen. But if you can identify with the pull of your lust to try to pull you away from Jesus, then this is for you, okay? First thing, something to realize, Satan wants to take people who are close to God and turn them against God. Just realize this and understand this about Satan. He wants to take people who are close to God and turn them against God. 
That happens here. Satan did not enter into one of Jesus' opponents. He didn't enter into one of the religious leaders and say, this guy really hates Jesus. I'm just going to take the easy win and grab him. He wants to go with me anyway, and we'll just take care of Jesus that way. He didn't even enter into someone who was a neutral party, who didn't even really care about Jesus. He entered into someone who was part of Jesus' inner circle, someone close. It's not the only time we see this in the scriptures. Think about the life of Job. And how Job just was, Job Job was just in love with God in an incredible way that's hard for us to even imagine. Like this great faithfulness of Job to be righteous among, I mean, he's the apple of God's eye as God looks out across humanity. Like Job is singled out for being this faithful person. And it's him who Satan tries to turn against God. Satan wants to take people with a very intimate knowledge of God and a very intimate experience of God and turn them against God. Why? Because that's his story. That's his life story. This intimate knowledge and experience of God. Satan's an angel. Did you know that? Satan is a fallen angel who had this intimate knowledge and experience of God but turned against God and fell and took a number of other fallen angels with him. And now he spends his time trying to take people who are close to God and turn them against God, just like his own story. Now, if you love Jesus and you feel that, if you pull, if you feel the pull of your lust to take you away from God and just your, your natural earthly desires, one, if you feel that strong pull and that, those strong attacks in your life and you think, goodness, when am I ever going to get over this? And I'm such a, such a bad person. I'm such a bad Christian. One thing you can think if you feel that strong, or those strong attacks and that strong pull, one, one thing you can think is, wow, that must mean I'm really far from God. And that can be, can be really hard, and that can be a reason to despair and think about this great distance between God and I because of these thoughts that I have and what I naturally want to do. And I just want you to consider the story of Satan and consider that it might be a better indicator of your proximity to God rather than your distance. Satan's strategy seems to be to attack the near ones, the Job's and the Judas's, and his delight seems to be from picking off people who have tasted the goodness of God. So I hope that can be an encouragement to you that if you feel vulnerable, it doesn't necessarily mean there's distance. It could just as well and maybe even probably mean that there's nearness nearness to God. Number one, Satan takes people who are close to God and tries to turn them against God. Here's the second thing. This is, again, something to realize. Realize that Satan is opportunistic. Satan is opportunistic. We see that come through in the text. We see that in verse 6, at the very end, that 
what happens when Satan enters Judas is that Judas begins to look for an opportunity. Satan enters Judas, Judas immediately begins to look for an opportunity. Now, think back to Luke chapter 4. Satan tempting Jesus himself in the wilderness. He wasn't able to get Jesus to turn against God. So we read that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. Satan is opportunistic. What does that mean? Well, it means that we won't always feel a full-on frontal attack from Satan. We may not even often feel a a full-on attack. He's opportunistic. That means that he waits and he watches for an opportunity. Here's what happens. Our Our natural lust for things builds... Sexual lust builds. Pride, the delight in who we are, builds. Desire for power, money, fame, and adoration, and they build over time, and we feed them, and we feed them, and we feed them. We feed our lusts, and they build, and they gain strength in our lives. Because of what we do and what we think about and what we long for in our minds and in our hearts. And this is all a result of our own evil heart, not the explicit work of Satan. It's just who we are. And we feed it and we feed it and we feed it. And what happens is that Satan merely looks for an opportunity to use what we already love against us. He looks for an opportunity to take advantage of our lust to get us to betray Jesus. That's all that happened in Judas' life. Satan didn't impart to Judas anything that wasn't already there. Satan did not enter into Judas and start practicing some kind of mind control to get uh, Judas to do what he didn't want to do. Say, go over here and do this. No, it was the opposite. Satan took advantage of what Judas already wanted himself. What he already willed for himself. Immediate gratification. Immediate reward. That's what Judas wanted more than ongoing relationship with Jesus. And that's why we can say that Judas is morally responsible for his actions. Because he wanted it. He himself wanted what he got. Satan just took advantage of what had already been building. And that's how it works with me and you, Christian. Satan cannot, does not, and cannot take over our bodies and minds and turn us into robots to get us to do what he wants us to do. But he can... And he may, and he does, look for opportunities to take advantage of what we already want and have been feeding our hearts on for a long time. He's opportunistic. He waits, and he waits, and he waits. He's so cunning. He waits. He lets us keep feeding ourselves. He just waits so long and waits till we're so full. 
Like the, the, the word that comes to mind for that is diabolical. Like that's, that word means of the devil. He, he just watches us feed ourselves and nothing happens and nothing happens and there's no harm to us. We think everything's fine and nothing happens and we're feeding ourselves and we're feeding ourselves and we're feeding ourselves and then boom, there's a betrayal. And then there's remorse. The deep, painful remorse that comes from setting in motion a chain of events that we can't take back. And the revelation to the world that there was something that we wanted more than Jesus. And that's the the moment of great victory for Satan because that's what he desires above all is the display to the world that, look, something else was considered more worthy to this person than Jesus Christ. He loves that. If he can just somehow show in my life and your life and whoever's life, see, it's just some silver. See, what that person really wants is an illicit relationship. The aim of the Christian life is the opposite. The aim of Christian life and the aim of worship is the opposite. It's to declare the worthiness of Jesus above everything else. Above all of my desires, all of my possessions, more worthy than even my life itself. Satan's opportunistic. He looks for opportunities to defame Jesus, and the closer a person is to Jesus, the greater the payoff in the betrayal. So this leads us all to this third thing, the point of action, right? We've been trying to realize some things about how Satan works, how he wants to take people who are close to God and turn them against God, how he's opportunistic and he just waits for an opportunity while we feed ourselves. The point of action, stop feeding your lusts. In the small ways that you feed them and in the large ways that you feed them, you should stop. Stop feeding your sexual lust with images and what you, what you scroll through, what you watch with your imagination, with, with whatever. Stop feeding your pride by those moments where you just compare yourself with someone else, whether it's walking down the street or at work or social media or whatever it might be, about you notice someone and then you just, the next thing you know, you're noticing how you're better, stronger, more beautiful, more talented, more successful, better family, better job, more money, and like knocking them down so you can build yourself up, this image that we like to create of ourselves. We, we feed those lusts when we scroll, when we walk the halls, when we watch things. We're experts in feeding our hearts in like really subtle, simple ways and then also in big ways. 
And we know that Satan waits to eventually take advantage of our lusts. So the answer is to stop feeding them. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know that your response to that is say, hey, Matt, you have got to do your job better than that. Like, this is a nuanced conversation. Like, you don't know what I'm dealing with and the ways that I've tried, and I need some... Uh, I need some, like, practical strategies in how to do this. You can't just tell people, stop feeding your lusts. And let me just respectfully say that I understand that objection. And for most of my life, I would have given that same objection. Like, give me a little more here than just stop. You can't tell adults, just stop. Like, tell me something else. I understand. But here's the reality. If the Apostle Paul can write to the Romans and say, don't let sin reign in your bodies. That's it. If the Apostle Paul can say, don't, without an explanation of how, then a preacher of the gospel can say, don't, without an explanation of how. Here's the reason a preacher of the gospel can say don't without an explanation of how. Because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God is living inside of you. If you didn't have God living inside of you, then I would have to give you strategies and schematics. And here's how you do it. And I have to write 50 books telling you how to do it. The reason a preacher can be so simple and say stop is because you have the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to realize, and that's what you need to bank on. That's why I can tell you, you need to stop. And stop with the excuses. It's God at work within you. We think that we need schemes and tricks and strategies. Satan is the one who has schemes and tricks and strategies. We have God, the third person, residing in these mortal bodies. And therefore, the answer to our problem is not complicated, but it's simple. And the answer is don't. So I'd like you to think about this week. that this week. When you're tempted to go back to that well, whatever that well is for you, I have my own wells, but whatever yours is, where you go to fill your cup, apart from Jesus, just remember, you know, I don't have to do that. You may think you're in prison from your sin. You are imprisoned by your sin, but you know what? The key is in your pocket. Did you know that? The key is in your pocket. You don't have to stay there because you have the Holy Spirit. Satan does not create. He only uses. And if there's nothing to use it will be very difficult to pick off. Now, we got to finish. The death of Jesus was at least partially the initiative of Satan. We talked about the plan of God. It's at least partially the initiative of Satan. We see that clearly here. And the last thing is that the death of Jesus was the work of humans. That's the most obvious component. We see humans going to work here. Scribes, Judas, they carried out the work that was in the plan of God, begun by the initiative of Satan. 
I think the significant thing to notice here is how all three classifications of rational beings were involved in the death of Jesus. There was a divine element, that's God. The angelic realm was involved, that's Satan. Humans also involved. That's all three classes of rational beings, all converging in the death of Jesus. And even within the realm of just mankind, even just looking at man, notice the comprehensive nature of the work that both Jew and Gentile were involved. This was a combined work project. Everyone was involved in, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Romans. Also, friends of Jesus were involved in, with opponents of Jesus. See, everybody, people in the world can't agree on anything, but everyone agreed on this, Jesus will die. Everyone converged and could agree on that. And it's a a shocking mystery that the one who shouldn't have died because he was innocent and the one who needn't have died because he is powerful and can do anything did Why? Why did this one who shouldn't have died and needn't have died, why did he die anyway? It's because of this final wonderful revelation that we get from the Bible that the death of Jesus not only came about by the plan of God and by the initiative of Satan and by the work of humans, but also because of the will of the Redeemer. See, that's the final component. He delighted in laying down his life for you, sinner. The plan of God, the initiative of Satan, the work of humans, and also the will of the Redeemer. He laid down his life to save us because try as we might to like win these battles that I'm talking about and say no to sin and say no to our lust. As hard as we try, we fail. We have failed. We will fail again. Our hope is not in ourselves or in our ongoing ability to be good, but our hope is just here, the reality that Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins because he loves us. And his obedience and his faithfulness has pleased God. He said no to temptation every time. He was perfect. He won. He loved God more than sin. He is our champion, and we rest in his love, in his sacrifice for us. And so our obedience now, like this sermon has had a really strong obedience beat and really sending you away to obey and obey and obey and say no. Our obedience now is not in order that we might be accepted, but it's because we have been accepted and because we recognize that he is worthy So if we said it a bit differently, we would say that we fight from love, not for love. I'm going to give you, this is the very last thing, I'm going to give you something else to feed your heart on. Feed your heart on the love with which Jesus has loved you. Take that in this morning. Feed your heart on something different. Feed your heart on the love with which Jesus has loved you. 
it's very human to crave and to lust for things that we want. But there's something even more fully human than that. There's something even more foundational to being a human than a desire to fulfill sinful lusts that make our flesh feel good. It's that most basic desire to be loved and to be loved fully and completely and to have the promise that that love will never go away. That's more foundational to being a human and that's what Jesus has done for you. That's who he is and who he will be to you. Feed your heart with the reality that you've been loved with an unbreakable love. That's who Jesus is and will be forever to you, Christian. Feed your heart on that. Father, uh, I just want to take a moment and reflect on this this love and, and thank you for this love that we see in Jesus. I thank you this morning that I can I can say these things and and give this strong word about opposing Satan with complete freedom because the foundation has been laid that that we're fighting from the love with which we've been loved. And, and just eager to show how worthy Jesus is because we have drunk in his goodness and like experienced in him, or maybe even this morning, experienced for the first time what it feels like to be loved completely, to have someone see how evil we are and how bad we are and love us anyway and lay down his life for us to save us and bring us closer and not send us farther away. And to realize that this love is unbreakable and will never end. We're just told this beautiful word, abide. Abide in my love. I pray for this group of brothers and sisters gathered here this morning. That as we go, um, the rest of today and this week, that we can feed our hearts on that. That we don't have to feed ourselves on garbage and make ourselves a target for Satan. But feed and feed and feed on the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you in his beautiful name. Amen.